Hello and welcome to the Young Gunners from the Texas Young Lawyers Association. We cut through the noise and discuss practical tips and challenges facing new attorneys in Texas and the United States. In this episode, I'm your host, Andy Jones. I'm an attorney at Sawicki Law in Dallas and currently serve on the board of directors of the Texas Young Lawyers Association. We're recording today from Dallas, and I'm talking with Bill Gameros. Bill is a partner in Hogan Gameros, where he specializes in business litigation, including oil and gas litigation. Our exciting topic for today is the unauthorized practice of law. Before we get down to it, I want to introduce my guest, Bill Gameros. Bill, how are you today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me in, Andy. No problem. So, before we get down to it, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you work, what you do, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, I've been in Dallas since 1996. Uh, I've been practicing nothing but litigation for that entire time. I graduated from the Cornell Law School with a law degree and an MBA. Before that, I was an Army officer. So if you can't sleep late at night and you're watching documentaries, you might see me on a show called Inside the Kill Box. Yes, that's me in the second hour. <laughs> and before that, I was a West Point grad. So, Wow. There. That's my brief bio, and that's how I got here today. I've been the chairman of the Dallas Unauthorized Practice of Law Committee for about 12, 13 years. Wow. So unauthorized practice of law, before I ask you how you got involved in all that, let's real quick, to the best possible, define what the unauthorized practice of law is. Okay. First, it's, it's not just the practice of law. Let's start with that. So it's someone who is without a Texas bar card in a setting or an environment where they're not allowed to be. So, for example, uh, there are various governmental agencies and other boards where you can go without a law license and give somebody legal advice. Huh. But okay. they allow it. Okay. So without someone expressly allowing it, it's someone who uses special legal skill and knowledge, drafting documents, advocating for clients, uh, without a license. And that's a Texas license. Let's not confuse that, and I may be jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, just because you're admitted to federal court here doesn't mean you get to practice law everywhere here. Oh, just okay. in federal court. Okay. And so the unauthorized practice of law, um, does that have a historical or statutory root where this comes from? It, it, it's Actually, it's embodied in uh, the government code, section 81.101 on the civil side, and then it's in the penal code as well, uh, Texas Penal Code 38123. Uh, that's its current statutory embodiment in both um, they're, the unauthorized practice of law statute's really pretty old, and it, it used to be before that a bar function, but it hasn't been for a long, long time. Okay. Um, so you've mentioned that there's places you can go to quasi-practice law where that's okay, and then there are places where that's not okay. That's right. Um, what are some of the places where that's okay? Well, for example, some, some arbitration bodies will let you do that. It depends on where you are and what you're doing. Typically what will happen in those arbitration bodies, though, it's a lawyer from another state who couldn't bring a state court action, for example, here. But if he's a California lawyer and he's here and he's in an arbitration, that may or may not cross the line. Here's the thing that will surprise you. The Please. Texas Unauthorized Practice of Law Committee is complaint-driven. In other words, if nobody complains, we're not going to go and do something about it. And that makes us different from a lot of different states. Okay. So... Then, before we jump on that, uh, how the UPL process goes, um, 
let's zero in real quickly on who is someone that can be practicing the unauthorized practice of law. Well, no one can practice the unauthorized practice of law. Uh-huh. That was yes. easy. I got that one right. <laughs> All right, so no one can do it. Um, but are there particular uh, areas of the law that people tend to attempt to practice law without permission and things like that? Sure. Uh, first, I'll tell you that it runs in streaks, and I don't know why that is. I've just seen that as a chairman. But the easy ones that you frequently see, um, you'll see the folks out there who are trying to say, avoid probate. And they're giving estate planning advice. Uh, they're typically annuity salesmen as well, but they're giving estate planning advice. Uh, you'll see them in immigration, where they're doing the H-2B visa or something like that. Uh, you'll see them acting in those environments. Those are the two common ones. So immigration and estate planning is where you see it a lot. Uh, the rest of them are a hodgepodge of case runners, people that are trying to settle personal injury claims, and if we, if we need to, we can go into how that works. But uh, the, the two primary areas that you see in Texas today mm-hmm. are immigration. Uh, they show up often as notarios, which in Central and South America means a lawyer. Okay. Um, what it means here is it's just a notary, somebody who sees your signature. But they see notario here, and they go there, and it's a lawyer. Um, at least they, if they were in Central America, it would be. So that's what you see. Okay. And in that vein, something that uh, I didn't know until I was reading your paper for this article, uh, this article and this podcast, but um, there's a specific penal code section to prevent people from kind of acting as other people's lawyers in personal injury cases. Yeah. That seemed unusual to me. Uh, you're holding yourself out for economic gain, and it's the, the, it's the actual uh, crime is the holding yourself out. Um, I could tell you a war story if you want to hear one. Yeah, you know, I'd actually love to learn a little bit more about that. Okay. We, we did a case, uh, a UPL case years ago, um, and, and the way the case came in, the complaint was that this particular individual was uh, interfering with a family estate. Uh, I don't know if you remember the movie Wedding Crashers. At the end of the movie, uh, Will Ferrell says, I got this new scam, we're going to go to funerals. Well, that's what this guy would do. He would go to funerals and he'd hand out business cards and talk about how it was wrong that the decedent was killed so young, etc. Um, so he would go around and get involved in estates, and that's how he got on our radar. And we sued him and ultimately got a judgment against him uh, for UPL. Oh, wow. Uh, he, he became famous later uh, because he would also represent people in criminal courts. And what he did was went into an interview room with law enforcement in Dallas uh, his client, uh, or customer rather, uh, was the getaway driver on a stick-up gone bad. Oh, my gosh. So he told him, hey, just tell the cops what happened. You didn't do anything wrong. So he did. And he talked himself right into a felony murder charge, capital. And the parents were just, you know, aghast that this had happened. Um, but Bill, yet here it is. So it can harm people. Bill, that really uh, nicely segues into the, the thing I wanted to ask about next was is, why is UPL a bad thing? I mean, you know, you're hired, you're hired by a client who doesn't know any better. Uh, you screw up their case. But, you know, that's what you paid for. That's what you got. Um, that war story kind of segues into why UPL is a bad thing. I just gave you a good example of it. Um, you know, I suppose if we wanted to have, a, you know, anarchy society and, and talk about market forces doing everything, uh, that wouldn't be the case. But the reality is having a, a license and going through the training uh, does provide some level of assured competence. Um, 
you know, I know there's people that say those malpractice happens all the time. In the UPL world, we see it all the time. Uh, the case that I described, he was doing a bad job in the estate. When he does the you know, dabbling in criminal law, he did a really bad job there. Um, and it had you know, pretty dire consequences for his client. Absolutely. Um, the other time you'll see him, and we've seen immigration cases where they just do an awful job describing what Im- immigration benefits their customer may or may not be authorized for. Okay. And we, we did one case, again, chasing a guy for doing fake immigration work. Uh, his client, he ended up getting his client deported to Morocco. Oh, my gosh. So it happens. So judging on the what, from what you said, there are some significant impacts on the public and, and people consuming legal services for the unauthorized practice of law. That's correct. Um, is there any kind of impact on the profession by those who are unauthorizedly practicing law? The, the, the impact on the profession is really more one of uh, kind of guilt by association. Uh, people say lawyers do a bad job, and they'll point to the person who's not a lawyer and say, see, this guy's terrible. Um, okay, yeah, that guy is terrible, but he's not a lawyer. Uh, the profession itself, you know, I don't believe that they're that the folks that do a lot of UPL are effective competition for competent counsel in the bar. I just don't see that. Um, they say that. They say, oh, we're, we're your competitors. Well, not really, as I'm getting them an injunction preventing them from practicing law. I don't feel competitive with them at all. I see. But... I think the public at large doesn't doesn't see that either. I've yet to see the public clamoring for, uh, let's get rid of the bar because we think these guys do as good job as you do. So. <laughs> okay. Um, switching gears real quick to go back to one point that I wanted to kind of make clear. We've talked a lot about people who don't have law license unauthorizedly practicing law. Mm-hmm. Can licensed lawyers unauthorizedly practice law? Absolutely. And how does that happen? Well, what happens is, and let's use an example, a case that I I helped prosecute, Uh, this particular individual had a Wyoming bar card and would take cases here in his office was in Irving. And uh, what he would do is he'd steer all of his clients into federal court, which is giving implied legal advice. In other words, your case is better in federal court than it would be in state court. Okay. And we ended up suing him for UPL and got a judgment against him. Uh, because he's not authorized to be practicing here, doing everything is what he was doing. Oh, okay. And so uh, other examples, I guess, for attorneys could be, um, I'm licensed in Texas, but I want to go take depositions in you know Maine or Illinois if I'm not licensed there. Could I be unauthorizedly practicing law in those forums? I, I don't know what the law is in those states. Uh, to the extent that it's a problem, you could probably just ask and then and be done with it if you're concerned about it. Okay. I'm unaware of anybody ever getting in trouble for doing that. Uh, it typically is the follow-on uh, getting sparky and filing motions in other states and all that that gets things going. But just taking a deposition, I'm, un- I'm unaware of okay. other state laws that say you can't do it, sure. nor am I aware of anyone getting in trouble for doing it. Okay. And I, I guess it's uh, because we're licensed attorneys, the scope of what we could potentially be doing unauthorizedly is a little bit smaller than someone without our training or licenses and things like that. Uh, maybe, maybe not. It depends. Okay. Uh, the example that I gave earlier is appearing in arbitrations. Um, you know, I've, I've seen circumstances where a Texas lawyer got involved in a uh, Maryland administrative hearing and got in trouble up there in the administrative hearing because he wasn't licensed, nor was he pro-hocked in. Okay. And they finally said, you know, you're not licensed here, and it became a big deal. So, again, not knowing the law of the jurisdictions where you're talking about, you could get in trouble for doing something relatively routine. 
and something, quite frankly, that could have been fixed with a pro hoc. So fair to say that the the competent attorney goes and finds out whether or not they need to become pro hoc vici or if they need to get licensed there or something before attempting to do something professional-wise in that jurisdiction. Uh, That's a fair statement. Okay. Um, Bill, we've talked a little bit about what UPL is and how it kind of arises. Uh, Let's talk about what's being done to, to... address UPL, the Unauthorized Practice of Law. Um, First off, is there an organization responsible for regulating this process? Uh, There is. Uh, I'm the chairman of the Dallas Subcommittee of the Supreme Court of Texas Unauthorized Practice of Law Committee. So it's a body of the Supreme Court, and uh, it has its own set of rules and organization. It's it's a a part of uh, the Supreme Court of Texas. Okay. And... um, so if you could just give us a general scope of uh, how many com- subcommittees are there, where do they work, in what courts do they work, how does the work get done? Okay. Uh, the state is organized into four regions, northeast, south, and west, and central, five actually. Uh, there's five regions in the state, and then there are subcommittees in your generally larger municipalities. Uh, so, for example, I'm in District 6, which has the same geography as the Grievance Committee. Uh, I was also the chairman of the Grievance Committee years ago, so it's interesting to see them working hand-in-hand. But District 6 is Dallas, and uh, that's where the subcommittees all reside. All of the members below, well, the state committee on down, all of us are volunteers. Okay. So there are a few people that that get paid to do work for the committee. Um, they're a state bar employee that's assigned to the committee. Um but that's it. So it's an all-volunteer organization. I would guess across the state there are several hundred, not several, a couple hundred members uh, of the UPL committee. The state has, I think it's 11 or 13 members, and then each region has a chairman, and then the subcommittees all have chairmen. Okay. So earlier you mentioned that it's a complaint-driven process. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the complaint-driven process and what that means. Okay. Uh, lots of sources of complaint. Um, it ranges from... Uh, individuals complaining about somebody, to a judge complaining about somebody, uh, to a lawyer complaining about finding somebody else. They all go to the txuplc.org website and file an online complaint. Or they send a letter to the UPLC, but they all have to, someone has to file a written complaint to get the process started. Okay. Uh, Without that, we don't just, you know, look around as a UPL member and go, ah, that looks like UPL. I will go investigate. (laughs) It's, It's not what we do. Uh, but without a complaint, it doesn't get started. Now, once the complaint is entered, uh, you know the investigation goes where it goes. It's investigated typically by a volunteer who goes and collects affidavits and documents and learns about what happened. It depends on what that individual respondent is doing. So, uh, an attorney, an attorney volunteer, essentially will prosecute a case against this person, doing written discovery, things of that nature, or. That's, that's jumping ahead of it. Yes, okay. where, where the complaints come from, Sure, uh, they come from the sources I described. What happens after that complaint comes in, it gets assigned to a subcommittee, typically in the home jurisdiction of the respondent, because uh. you're going to sue him ultimately for an injunction if he's doing something that he shouldn't be doing. Uh, the investigation happens at the subcommittee level. The subcommittee can decide to do th- basically three things, take no further action, they can ask the respondent for a cease and desist agreement, or they can ask the state committee for approval to sue him. And if they ask the state for 
permission to sue, I bring that recommendation up to state, make a presentation to the state committee. They either accept it and say, yes, we should sue them, or they decline and say, no, we don't want to, or they'll want to send it back for more investigation. Uh, the last one's relatively rare. It's usually, yes, we want to do it, or no, we don't. Okay. Um, if they say yes, it comes back and it's assigned to an attorney. The people who are members of each subcommittee are not just attorneys, but also lay members of the public. Oh, so, really? Typically, in, at least in Dallas, they're typically paralegals, and they do a great job. What's, why are they on there? What's their role, These the, the lay members of the committee? They do investigations. Oh, okay. So at the subcommittee level, they'll participate. We meet once a month, uh, with the exception of December, because no one goes to the December meeting. So I stopped having it. I canceled it years ago. <laughs> um, they meet once a month. We get a status on what's going on in investigations. We'll have an evidentiary hearing bring in the respondent, ask him questions, you know, why are you doing this, what are you doing, how are you doing it, and from that evidentiary hearing, if it hasn't been disposed of prior to, they determine whether or not take no further action, ask for a cease and desist, or ask for suit authority. Okay. And is that, what's the typical life cycle of a uh, of a complaint? How many of these actually, you know, go on to full, you know, full suits versus classifies inquiries and dismissed or however that process goes. Yeah, it's different than grievance. We don't classify them, we don't classify them as an inquiry and dismiss them. Um, you know, to be honest, I, if I were on state, I'd be able to call that information up and tell you what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Dallas, I would say probably, I don't know, 5 or 10% actually turn into litigation. Okay. Um, that's probably high. But, um, and that, that's, it's high for a simple and obvious reason. Most folks, when you tell them, hey, what you're doing is breaking the law, they, they quit. They say, oh, I'm really? sorry, I had no idea. We'll never do that again. And we never see them again. The folks that get sued by the UPL committee are generally of the uh, you-can't-tell-me-what-to-do variety. Yeah, well, okay, maybe, maybe you're right. We'll find out. And then that goes on up. We get sued authority, and then we see who's right. Wow. It, and so the pushback you receive is, uh, you know, anything interesting you have to tell us about, you know, cases in that variety? Oh, sure. I, uh, one of my favorite cases uh, was against an individual who sold the package. Uh, the package? The package. Oh, my so gosh. So his, his customer uh, was arrested in Nacogdoches for uh, a misdemeanor. And he's at his first hearing in front of the judge where they ask, how do you plead? And he starts reading from the package, because that's what you're supposed to do, read from the package. Okay. And he starts with, what do you mean, how do I plead? Plead in rem? Plead in personam? Plead in the jurisdiction? I don't know what you're talking about. It's all this legal mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> and the, the judge stops him and says, whoa, whoa, stop, stop, stop. You're a lawyer. I'll, I'll deal with you at the end. So, of course, the package says, if the judge tells you to stop, tell him, no, you can't stop me. You're falsifying the record by omission. And... I'm just telling you what the package says. This I don't is, say it's good legal advice. I was going to say, this doesn't sound like very sound legal advice. It, it, it doesn't end well. Um, so finally, the judge is annoyed by this and gives him his phone call. He calls the UPL respondent, which we'll meet in a minute, who uh, calls the clerk, calls the bailiff, finally gets a hold of the judge. The package is not working, by the way. This guy is in jail, and this is not, you know, paid 100 bucks for the package. It's supposed to work. The judge says, hey, okay, who are you? The respondent identifies himself. Uh, Do you represent this guy? Yes, I do. Are you going to enter an appearance in this case? Yes, I am. What's your bar card number? I don't need no stinking bar card number. Really? So my complainant is the judge. Pretty good complaint. Absolutely. Um, 
so I ended up suing this guy for the UPL committee. Um, we were in the 193rd, this is years ago. Uh, he decided because he's a North American, not a Texan, okay, oh. that the flag has a fringe, so it's not for me, and I have filed a special appearance, so you don't have jurisdiction over me. Um, I thought all that was interesting and fun, but not relevant. So I filed a response to a special appearance. I filed a motion for summary judgment. I set them both at the same time. Uh, he lost his special appearance. Oddly enough, living in Garland means you're subject to jurisdiction here. <laughs> and and uh, then proceeded on the summary judgment and got the injunction. So. Wow. That's what a typical lawsuit without some of the weirdness sounds like. Okay. Um, and and I, I, I guess it could be a whole other podcast to discuss um, the unique some of the unique issues you face in these cases, uh, you know, including the uh, the gentleman who objects to the fringe on the flag. Uh, he didn't like the fringe. He didn't like the eagle. Uh, he wanted to have his secretary, um, who was a person that would read for him, uh, come forward and assist him. Okay. Um, the judge said he wasn't a member of the bar, so no. Uh, the UPL respondent heard a lot of no. Okay. Uh, yeah, like, for example, do I have to wear these handcuffs? Can I be released from my chains and irons? No. <laughs> um, things like that. You know, just that's what happened. So, Bill, do it, licensed attorneys have any obligations regarding reporting UPL, preventing UPL, that sort of thing? Um, reporting is, is covered under the rules of professional conduct, so it depends on what the issues that they encounter, okay. whether they have to report it or not. Uh, they don't have, I don't believe, they don't have an affirmative obligation to prevent it. But I sure wish folks with bar cards would report it. Um, it. It's not an onerous form to fill out on the website. And you know, a lot of times what will happen is the person who reports it, now it's nothing to do with it. I want to be anonymous, you know, on and on and on. That generally will fail. The investigation will fall apart at that point. So I guess to the extent you don't want to have anything to do with it, then don't report it. But if you're willing to say, I saw something bad and it shouldn't be happening, you should report it. And I think it's fair that us as members of the bar should want that to happen because we want to preserve the integrity of our profession and protect the public from people who are trying to, to some degree, hurt them. That's right. I mean, I don't think it's any more fancy than that. Um, like I said, the big driver that we see, a lot of the complaints that we get uh, are what we would call an advertising complaint. Uh, typically, they're in foreign language newspapers in the suburbs, but so-and-so is an immigration lawyer and, and he can read Vietnamese. Okay. And he'll see a series of ads in Vietnamese you know, for this person who I do translations and business deals and family law and on and on. Oh, you do everything that lawyers do. Well, you must be a lawyer. Yeah. And they're not. Ah. Uh. So um, we had a case relatively recently. Again, I ended up taking that case to litigation. Um, it was a pair of sisters who came in um, that they, they sort of went through the, the charade of, oh, I don't speak English very well. But they both had degrees from UNT. Okay. So I was like, okay. And then they had they had a lawyer, and one of them said, nope, we're going to sign the agreed injunction, we're done. And the other one had to go a few more rounds. And ultimately, they signed the agreed injunction, and we're done. Okay. So it, it happens. Um, a lot of cases go away on agreed injunctions. Really? Mm-hmm. So, Bill, let me ask you a little bit more about... Um, we've talked... You, you've mentioned agreed injunctions... Uh, what is the range of consequences for somebody who performs UPL and is ult- goes through the process and is ultimately found, yes, you've committed the unauthorized practice of law? From the committee's perspective, the only relief we can seek is an injunction. Okay. So we don't get damages. We do get costs. 
Um, we don't get damages. We don't get attorney's fees. We don't ask for them. Uh, for a civil litigant who gets sued by somebody other than us, then there's a variety of relief. And the attorney general also gets a variety of relief. relief. The attorney general shows up, sues under the DTPA. I see. So he's asking for damages and fees when he's here. Uh, the whole range of relief that's available under the DTA stat- DTPA statute when the attorney general sues. Um, there is a small but significant body of law that says that, for example, contracts procured by UPL are void. So if you're a civil litigant and you find yourself the victim of UPL, uh, you've got some great relief available to you there, and that means rescission and damages and all that. But just for us on the UPL committee, an injunction is it. Okay. And um, what, again, what, I'm sorry, what again was the uh, website where people could go and make complaints? It's txuplc.org. Excellent. Um, Bill, I want to talk to you a little bit about how you got involved in participating in UPL. Um, the committee, rather, not the actual unauthorized practice of law. It's too bad I was about to make a joke about that. No, I, <laughs> I don't do UPL. Thanks for asking. No, uh, a long time ago, I was going to say probably 2000, uh, maybe 2001, um, a friend of mine was on the UPL committee. Uh, he's now just stepped down as the state chairman, Leland De La Garza. Um, was having a, a, a tough time with a, with a UPL case and asked me if I'd be interested in, in joining the UPL committee to do it. And I said, sure. So my first exposure to the UPL committee was taking a, a case um, you know, for the committee against an individual uh, who, before this UPL case and after it, had a fairly rich criminal history. And uh, I was like, okay, that, that's fine. We can do that. And that's how it started. Just would you take a case for the committee? Sure. And I joined the committee, and I've been on it ever since. So um, I, that's nearly 20 years you've been doing this. That's right. Wow. And, and as chairman of the subcommittee, do you have any specific role in uh, in this process that's unique to your position? Or, um, Sure. As the chairman, I assign cases that come in to the subcommittee. Um, I probably litigate a third to half of the cases for the Dallas committee. I just I like doing them. Uh, I don't mind doing the cases. Uh, from handing me the file to being ready to put the suit out the door with the full set of discovery, I can get done in about an hour. Wow. After you've done a few, it's pretty quick. 20 years later, you're pretty okay. Yeah, pretty quick. Um, So it's efficient. I don't mind doing it. Um, I assign the investigations out to all the subcommittee members and make sure that the the lawsuits do get around to different members aside from myself. Okay. Um, Bill, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about if you had a – favorite case or a, a very you know very significant case to you or just something you think you'd like to share with us a, a, a case about UPL um, well, the one I mentioned earlier with the, the guy who said he wasn't from here he's a North American is probably my favorite UPL case um, one of the things he would do is uh, he, he would complain about me personally a lot really and, <laughs> a lot uh, he sued me. He's got a lien against me someplace. I'm sure he's got more. Um, you know, he loses all of them, but uh, his big thing is that I am a bar terrorist. Okay, A bar terrorist? A bar terrorist. And that's the British Accredited Registry. What does that mean? Well, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, what he would do is uh, he would write my bar number, uh, start writing in red ink, 007, start writing in black ink, 96596. So he would highlight the 007 from my bar card 
therefore I must be in the British accredited registry because I'm 007. You are a spy. Correct. Like James Bond. Correct. So at one of his hearings uh, where he spent a couple nights in jail, he called me as a witness. Really? He doesn't know anything about me. He asked me, and he's very proud of this, if I'd ever sworn an oath to defend the Constitution. Uh-huh. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I have. And he was very surprised by that. And he said, well, where were you when you did it? And it was kind of said with that sneering voice, well, I did it once at Fort Dix. I did it once at West Point. I actually did it twice at West Point. Um, <laughs> I think that's probably good enough. And he was shocked, like, now what do I do? I'm like, well, that, w- that wasn't fun for you, was it? You know? <laughs> so he, um, he's actually a Canadian. Um, really? Yeah. Okay. And his, his UPL was selling the package, um, but he, he also has a rich uh, criminal history as well. Wow. Here and there. Um, are there any kind of uh, sources of UPL? We've talked about things you can do to be unauthorized in practicing law. Um, but is there a particular cause or genre or, or type of person that would UPL? Um, not, there's not a specific person. Uh, when, when you think when, when you said sources of UPL, uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, the sovereign citizen groups mm-hmm. are really into UPL. Okay, um, because they don't recognize our courts. There's the capital C, capitals, capital C, capital C county courts. Okay, which are their own creation. I've never been there. I don't know where it is, but they say they exist. Okay, um, that's one. And a lot of UPLers do a really bad job of cut and paste from the internet. I see. So. So, for example, some of the paper I've gotten from one of the UPL guys has a demur in it, which exists in California and is very interesting out there. It just we don't have that practice here, huh. so it, it didn't do very well for him, as you might suspect. Um, but you know, he filed it. I'm sure that felt really good to put some more paper out there, but it didn't do anything. Uh, a lot of them do that. Does the proliferation of I'm sorry, does the proliferation of things like legal zoom and, and the ability to find stuff on the internet? Have you seen that increase or decrease the unauthorized practice of law complaints? Um, actually, I don't think it's really had an effect on it. Okay. Uh, remember, we're a complaint-driven system. So a lot of the, I hate to say it, but a lot of the injuries that will be done to themselves by using those products, uh, who are they going to complain about? Ah, uh, I see. So let me give you an example. Uh, there was an organization that preceded uh, LegalZoom called We the People. Uh, in the Dallas subcommittee... If I didn't get a complaint about them once a week, I got twice a week. Wow. They had an office on Forest Lane in Dallas. And what you would do is you'd go in and fill out a questionnaire book and then hand it in, and they'd send it off someplace else, and they would type it up and send it back to you. The problem is it it didn't do really very complicated divorce work. So, for example, if you've got a family that's got one income earner with a retirement account and the other one without, well, normally you'd get a quadro in your divorce on the way out. This didn't do that. Oh. So that's, that was one of the problems. And we ended up getting an injunction against them, uh, changed their business practice, and they went out of business anyway. Okay. Bill, I want to ask you, because this is a product of the Texas Young Lawyers, do you have any advice for young lawyers on uh, avoiding UPL? Um, I probably field a phone call a month from a lawyer from out of state saying, hey, I'm, I, I want to make sure I don't get in trouble for UPL. Um, and it, it varies from state to state how UPL is governed there. But if, for example, you know that you have a particularly aggressive adversary 
and you're going to be doing some work in Florida, you might want to call the Florida UPL committee and find out, hey, what do I do to make sure I don't get in trouble with you guys if you're concerned that your opponent is going to make a big deal out of it? Um, I get that question, like I said, about once a month. Okay. It comes in, and I say, well, first of all, if, what, are you, what are you really doing? And if the answer is I'm coming in to take a deposition, it would be hard put to compl- have a complaint about you. If you're going to be coming here and doing something else, well, maybe you need to think about what that's going to look like. So it's a pro hoc. If you're in federal court and you're admitted to the, the district court and you qualify for admission, and, and then we have nothing to say about it. And that comes, there's a, actually a Supreme Court case, Sperry, that talks about how lawyers that have a bar card can practice intellectual property anywhere. Really? It's exclusive federal jurisdiction. we got nothing to say about it. Okay. And then do you have any kind of advice for young lawyers on spotting and reporting UPL? You will know it when you see it. Let's start with that. Okay. Most people, most people will say, man, it doesn't seem right. I've, I've got a pro se on the other side. This paper is better than it ought to be. You don't have a pro se on the other side. You know you don't have a pro se on the other side. So how's this person doing it? Uh, I just finished getting an injunction against a guy who literally hangs out at the courthouse and sells paper. So he'll write your paper for you, and you show up as a pro se and just get up there and say, Your Honor, I want what's in the paper. Wow. Happens a lot. And, and got caught by a lawyer who said, There's no way. Okay. So... It's, I guess it's that it's not that simple, but it is that simple that it's a it's a kind of a gut test, but you will know it when you see it. You know it when you see it. Wow, mm-hmm. outstanding, Bill. If someone wanted to learn more about UPL uh, or how to get involved with the UPLC, um, would they is that, would they go to the website? Sure, go to the website. That's easy. Um, if you're in in Dallas, uh, we meet every month third Thursday at the Bilo. Just come down. Depending on where you are, they meet at either a law office or the courthouse or some. Who knows? It depends. There are literally subcommittees all over the state. So wherever wherever you are, uh-huh. uh, you know, find out who your local subcommittee chairman is. It's going to be based on your municipality. If that doesn't work, call your northern chair. They're all identified on the website. Say hi. I live wherever it is. I live. How do I join the local committee? You don't even have to join. I tell people just come down, kick the tires, sit through a couple meetings. You don't have to join. Just come and see. And if they like it, they stay. Wonderful. So, Bill, do you have any last thoughts for us, uh, Texas Young Lawyers and everyone listening out there in podcast land? Um, anything else you'd like to share about this topic or um, while you've got the mic in front of you, anything else you'd be interested in sharing with us? I think it would surprise people. It may not surprise you, but it would surprise a lot of people how much I enjoy working on the committee. Really? And a lot of people beat the pro bono drum really hard say go down and sit for pro bono and do that this is how I do mine Uh, I sue people that shouldn't be doing what they're doing and right now I don't have a lawsuit Uh, it's unusual I normally have one almost all the time just that's the nature of the process I enjoy it it's the way I give back wonderful well Bill thank you for taking the time for being here today and being with us and being a part of this program Um, and again thank you all for listening to Young Gunners from the Texas Young Lawyers Association if you like our show and want to check out other episodes, they're available on our website, tyla.org, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a topic you want to hear about, email us at tyla at texasbar.com or send us a tweet at texyounglawyers using the hashtag younggunners. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. We hope to see you back here for another episode. Mm-hmm.
Thank you.